discussion this morning. I, um, I really appreciate it. My mind, it set my mind to thinking immediately as we were looking at that text in, um, in the passage you chose. And it immediately reminded me of a corollary passage to it in uh, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1, uh, which is in a very real way a, a, a really condensed summary of the entire passage you looked at. If you don't remember Proverbs 28.1, it says, the, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous is as bold as a lion. Um, so it was just a good reminder that uh, that uh, when we are in Christ, as the, the second song we sang, uh, and the third song, um, the idea, but especially the end of the second song, um, the uh, my breaches, uh, the breaches of my sin are his, and his obedience is mine. Um, we don't stand in our own righteousness because if so, then we'd still be fleeing, wouldn't we? But instead, we are uh, we are standing in His righteousness, and so we can be as bold as a lion. It dramatically ties into the text we're looking at this morning as well. So I just want to say again, which I appreciate that connection. Proverbs twenty-eight one has always been a challenging passage to me. Because and so it's, I never connected the dots before to that passage. You look at Leviticus. Um, it's always been a challenge to me because I, in my natural state, am wicked, and if it wasn't for His righteousness, I would still be fleeing, even though no one is pursuing. And um, and yet, because we have His righteousness, we can be as bold as a lion, which is an interesting intrigue because um, He is described as the Lion of Judah. That's even, even more intriguing in the layers that you see in that text. So I'm going to throw that out there. Thank you. So this morning, we are in Acts chapter 17. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, then we will begin. Lord, help us again this morning as we open up this text. That you will help us to comprehend and understand and worship and be amazed at your love because we certainly... Uh, don't deserve it. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you will transform our hearts this morning and remind us again, as we already learned, that uh, we are, by your mercy and grace, placed into your righteousness. And so we can be bold as a lion because our older brother Jesus is the lion. And so, Lord, I pray you will help us as we worship you, that we will glorify you in relation to the truth. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Tom, for reading the text this morning in Second Thessalonians. I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, chapter two. Um, that, that's a, a somewhat of a corollary text to the text we'll be in this morning because it's referencing. It's obviously written to the church at Thessalonica. We're going to be looking at the Thessalonian church this morning, the beginnings of the Thessalonian church. Um, but also, um, it it re references the Philippian church as well, the, the people of Philippi, that is, and how they were. Um, pretty uh, abusive group of people towards he and uh, Silas. And, and so, uh, at the same time, he commends uh, the believers of Thessalonica. In any case, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 17 this morning. I don't believe that we're going to find a whole lot of, um, of what I would describe as intricate surprises in the text this morning. But there will be a lot of really good and important reminders and hopefully encouragements and challenges that we'll see as we work our way through them. Let's read the text first, starting in chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them about the scriptures, or from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jew, uh, Greeks, and not a few leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out, bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, and shouting, "These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also." And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's our text this morning. It's the beginnings of the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. You'll notice that when Paul and, and, and his uh, friends leave Philippi, which is the end of 16, they immediately uh, uh, continue over to Amphipolis, which is uh, basically a town just outside of Philippi. And then they continue on to Apollonia, which is a town outside Thessalonica. Um, it is interesting to notice that there's nothing said about Amphipolis or Apollonia in the text. It's just that they passed through. I suspect knowing Paul and Silas that that just passing through is probably not just passing through. Uh, as in, they probably, at least for a day or so, preached the gospel while they were there. Because that's Paul and Silas's manner. But the implication, it is just the implication, is that in these two towns, there was no real effect. And they continued on which in the case of Amphipolis is not entirely unsurprising, uh, considering that there is a history of the Jewish people uh, following Paul around and creating havoc. Uh, it's not unsurprising that, that there may not have been much in the way of response. But anyway, in the end of verse two, uh, end, end of verse one, they arrive in Thessalonica, and they discover right away that there's a synagogue of the Jews there. Unlike Philippi, there's a synagogue in Thessalonica. So as is their tradition, we see in verse 2, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. We're just going to stop with that for just a second. You'll notice that he went first to the Jews again, which, as it says, was his custom. He goes and proclaims to the Jews. You'll notice it says he went for three Sabbaths. Now I want to just pause then for a brief moment, because when the scriptures inspire some information, it's there for a purpose. I think it's important that we recognize because it, it's important for the for the subject matter at hand in the in the uh, storyline of Thessalonica is that for three Sabbaths it doesn't mean nothing happened in between, but for three Sabbath days they went to the synagogue and they taught and reasoned with regard to Jesus. Now we're going to get into what that means in just a second, but the point I want to make is that this is not a a, in the synagogue a, a just a little feeble attempt. They are after for quite some time, and by the way, lest we miss the point, their services are not like our services today. They didn't have a general understanding of when the service was going to end. 
they didn't have uh, a plan. We're going to sing a few songs, have a message, have and sing a few more songs, and we'll go by our day. When they got together, and the person who is speaking gets up to speak, he spoke till he was done. And whenever he was done, he was done. He wasn't done yet, he just kept on going. We've kind of lost that in the last 150 to 200 years, because it historically has always been the case. Um, but David sometimes would preach for hours on end, and speak and, and teach for hours on end. Uh, and there are times that they would that they would not only just teach or preach for hours on end, but they would they would, as we know, with Paul, at least at one point, go all night. We remember that, right? And by the way, if they went all night, that meant they'd probably go all day too. Now, it, this text does not mean that Paul was the primary speaker in the synagogue. Just want to put that out there. He's not an invited guest lecturer or guest speaker or guest pastor, as it were. Guest rabbi, since we're talking about the Jews. Jewish faith. It's not that he's invited as a guest rabbi. Most likely what's going on is he shows up in the service, the Sabbath service, the rabbi's doing his thing, and most likely what happened is the rabbi and he, afterwards or maybe even during the service, got involved in a disagreement. They disagreed. In other words, the rabbi said he was going to say about the Old Testament, and somewhere along the line, most likely, Paul spoke up and said, Well, that text you're talking about, that's talking about Jesus. And then the rabbi, of course, would say, What do you think? Yeah, yeah it absolutely is not. And Paul would have said, Well, Actually, it is. Let me explain why. Now, the tradition in the, in the Jewish synagogues was that these kind of conversations would take place. Not necessarily messianic conversations, but conversations including disagreements would, would regularly and commonly take place. And sometimes they'd go on for a long time, and oftentimes they would just end up being the rabbi and the guy disagreeing or commenting. Sometimes it was interesting to everybody, they'd all hang around and listen. And sometimes they would go for hours and hours and hours. And it would make sense if you were to think about it, because if you're a good Jew, on a Sabbath day, what else do you have to do? It's not like today where our, our world comes crushing in on us all the time, including all the things that we invite to come in and crush in on us, right? If the Jew is a good Jew, the Jew, being a good Jew, is following the law on the Sabbath day, which means he's not doing anything other than worshiping in, in, at, at the synagogue or temple, as the case may be. And so, realistically, you're either going to go home, if you're a good Jew, and talk about what you heard in the synagogue, or if a conversation breaks out, you're going to stay there and partake in and, and listen to the discussion and the disagreement in the synagogue. Make sense? If I may just say this, I think we kind of lost that. And I think it's sad to say. It's kind of lost. And I think that that, that concept, I think, is, uh, is bad. But something we're trying to recapture on Sunday evenings, by the way, just a little advertisement there. It's something we've, we've tried to recapture a continuing discussion about what we study in the morning. In any case, so Paul goes in, you'll notice it was a street, as is custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he spent time discussing the truth as he sees it in the scriptures. So he goes back the next Sabbath and does the same thing. And he goes back the next Sabbath. If, if the rabbi is not agreeing with him, it most likely is that he must he probably was not real thrilled by the third Sabbath. And he shows up once again to discuss and, and, and disagree with the rabbi with regard to Jesus. In any case, you'll notice how it's described in verse 2. And this is where it gets very important. And Paul went in, as was his custom, that is, into the, into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, three Saturdays in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So what is going on here? Paul is going, again, he's hearing the message as presented by the rabbi. He interacts with the message most likely. And because every, I mean, realistically, if you're in the Old Testament, working your way through the Old Testament in any place, it's not that hard if you're thinking about Jesus, the Messiah, wherever the, the, um, the rabbi goes, it's not that hard to find Jesus in the text, will it? And I'm not saying to play games with the text. I'm just saying, as Jesus said on the road to, to Emmaus, it, it, uh, John records that he opened the scriptures and showed how it was all pointing to him. And knowing that, that in, in the Old Testament as well as today, almost inevitably at some point in time, just for sake of example, the rabbi will read something out of Isaiah. It happens almost invariably. On almost any given Sabbath, that the rabbi will read something out of Isaiah. Well, I'm sorry, if you're going to read out of Isaiah, you're going to be talking about Jesus. Because that's what Isaiah is all about. It's about the Christ, the Messiah. So you get the picture of what's really going on here um, is, is this lively, ongoing conversation. But notice what Paul does. It says, first of all, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. It's an intriguing point that Luke targets here, and it's not unique to this text. It happens throughout the text. That is, the text of Acts, and you see it outside of the text of Acts. You see it in other books of the Bible, especially the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, but especially the New Testament, you see it over and over again with Jesus and then with all the apostles. What they do is they do, as it says here, they reason with the hearers, and these hearers, these them that's being referred to is primarily, most likely, the rabbis, but also anybody else who is there, secondarily, because they're probably joining in on the conversation. They reason with them from the scriptures. Luke is very specific about what the process looked like. It involves reasoning and scriptures, not as two separate things. It's not reasoning and the scriptures. It's reasoning from the scriptures or out of the scriptures. In other words, what Paul is doing from however long each one of these Sabbaths went, is you find Paul saying, excuse me, but the scriptures say, and taking them to a scripture. 
And then sometimes you can you can almost hear it where the people are arguing with him. If you've ever been in any discussions about Jesus or the Bible with people, you know what happens oftentimes. You'll hear things like, and I doubt there was any different in this day, you'd hear statements like, yeah, but I think, or yeah, but I feel, or yeah, but I believe. Right? You ever hear that? That's all the time. It's like hardwired into people, isn't it? Almost every time I get into a discussion with somebody, that's what I hear. Many times in my life in ministry that I've talked to people about truth, whether they're unsaved people or people who claim to be believers, I find that I usually let it go for a while until I start pointing it out after a little while. I will share with them what the scriptures say and they will inevitably respond with what I think, or I believe, or I feel. I suspect that as he's dialing with, dialing with, the, with the rabbis, it's probably a whole lot more tight to the scriptures than that. They're probably actually quoting scriptures and pointing to scriptures, and he's probably saying, yeah, but that's not what that text is referring to. If I may give a modern-day example, if you talk to a conservative Jew today, typically, about Isaiah, since I brought up Isaiah, if you talk to a modern Jew today, typically, I'm talking about a conservative Jew, not, not your liberal Jews, but your conservative Jews, whether they're Hasidic or not, um, your conservative Jews, and you start talking about Isaiah, and you start talking about the Messiah that's being referred to in Isaiah, the vast, vast majority of them no longer, now the Hasidics are still looking for an actual literal Messiah. Other than that, most Jews look at Messiah passages and they believe that that's referring more to corporate national Israel today, the nation of Israel. instead of a personal Messiah. It's very interesting when you dialogue with them and you start to say, yeah, but that text and this text and other text doesn't work with that perspective. It cannot be that way. That's reasoning with them today with the scriptures. That make sense? That text cannot mean that because, and you start showing them the evidence where? Found in the scriptures. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. Whether they're saying, I think, I believe, I feel, or whether they're literally saying, well, the scriptures say this, in all four categories, what you find Paul and Silas and his friends doing is what? Spending their time in the scriptures, unpacking the scriptures, reasoning with them using logic, reasoning with them, but from the scriptures. That text cannot mean what you're saying it means because the scriptures say, I want to make it as clear as possible, this is what happened, what's happening. Because the scriptures say blank, it can't be what you're saying over here. Or they, they are saying, well, I can appreciate that you think blank about the Messiah, but the scriptures say blank about the Messiah. 
In other words, we're trying to point out what Paul primarily, because he's the primary speaker, is doing as he speaks to these people for three straight Sabbath days is he is being, he's having his conversation tightly linked and intertwined with the scriptures. Now that's really important. I would argue it's really important. Because that's not typically where people go today. It's I think, I think, I think, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I think, I think, I think, I think, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. And sometimes it's, well, I feel this way about the text, or I believe this about the text, or that's just what that text means to you, but it means this to me, or whatever the case may be. It's really important that we recognize that as Paul spoke to the, to the people in the synagogue in Thessalonica, it was tightly woven, intricately woven with the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's so tightly woven with the scriptures that without the scriptures, the implication is Paul has no argument. And it's really important we see this. For Paul in Thessalonica, and it's not just Thessalonica, it's everywhere, contrary to what a lot of people think, even on Mars Hill it was. For Paul, his argument is so scripture-saturated that for Paul, no scripture, no argument. No scripture, no disagreement. No scripture, no authority. No scripture, no standing. Now why do I bring that up? Well, firstly, it's because Luke identifies it. But more importantly, it's because without Luke even saying it, you know what this text is all about? It's about the supremacy of the scriptures. It's about the authority of the scriptures. It's about the tool that the Spirit uses to transform lives and harden lives. He uses the scriptures. For three Sabbaths, what did Paul do? He brought, he brought the scriptural howitzer to bear. That's what he did. He didn't come with the idea that my reasoning can trump your reasoning. He came with the authority of the scriptures. Now, the most important, I think for today, most important uh, uh, point that I'm trying to make is this. Paul and Silas could do that why? Because they are saturated with the scriptures. That's why. They could do that because they were immersed in the scriptures. They could do that because they had a deep and abiding love for God's letter for the historical redemptive story. 
They were consumed with knowing the scriptures. And knowing it accurately. They were consumed with drinking deeply at the fountain of living water. Sound familiar? And the only way we get to the fountain of living water is in the scriptures. That's all we know about Jesus. And that is enough. And so Paul and Silas and his friends are deeply, deeply saturated. You squeeze Paul and out comes scripture. You throw rocks at Paul. You hit Paul with rods. You throw him in prison. And what comes out? Scripture. You start throwing rocks at Stephen. And what comes out? Scripture. And you go on and on and on. And that's what you see, isn't it? Every point, every moment. I mean, Stephen, even his last words were what? A quote from the Gospels. Wasn't it? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who else said that? Jesus did. It's a direct quote from the scriptures. His last words as rocks were literally bouncing off of his skull. Scripture. Why would that be? I don't know about you, but I think if I was getting hit by rocks and bouncing off my skull and I knew I was going to die, I'm not sure that scripture would be coming out. Does that make sense? Some imprecatory psalms. Eh? Yeah, maybe some imprecatory psalms. But why is it that for Stephen it'd be scripture? Why is it for Paul it'd be scripture? Why is that? It's because they're saturated. That's what they know. And Paul knew other things, didn't he? I mean, he was a tent maker. He has other things. He was a man of the world. He understood what was going on in the world. He's a traveler. He has a lot of experience. But he's saturated in the scriptures. And you could argue, well, he's a Pharisee. Of course he could be saturated in the scriptures. By his own admission, all that was useless. He had, after he became a believer, he had to totally relearn the scriptures. Totally relearn the scriptures. And if that was the case, you still have Silas and Stephen and all these other people. Why do I point this point out is because I don't think that's the way it is today. What do you think? I don't think that's the way it is today, typically. We are no longer people who are thoroughly saturated. with the scriptures. Today, if I may be blunt, Christianity at best could be described as devotional. 
that make sense? What I mean by that is at best, Christianity can be described as people who give 15, 20 minutes a day to have a devotional. And that's at best, isn't it? Because for the most part, most Christians don't even do that. In some cases, you could say at best, Christianity is Christian radio. It's not even devotional. That's even worse. This morning, for the first time in a long time, I commented to Ruth on the way here, I heard a, a Christian DJ actually share something that was biblically accurate. I was shocked. That almost never happens. And it's still at best. Because more likely than that is most times I find that Christianity is at best worldly with a little Christian seasoning on it. A little Christianity sprinkled on it. And oftentimes it's barely even that. It certainly doesn't look like this. Just to give you a test. Just ask yourself this quick question. Let's say next Saturday you decided to go to the synagogue, wherever the local synagogue is, and you decided to reason with them from the scriptures about the Messiah. Think you could make it through three Sabbaths? Just asking. Do you think you can make it through two? How about one? How about an hour? How about a half hour? Ten minutes? Or do you think more likely than not you'd probably sit there and cower and leave? I suspect for most people who claim to be believers, it'd probably be sit there and cower and leave. I suspect it would not be. Let's reason with the scriptures or from the scriptures together on that. And the reason why is not just because we don't know the scriptures. Because it begs the question, why don't we? But it's because we don't desire the Christ of the Scriptures. Because if we desire the Christ that is described in the Scriptures, the Messiah as described in the Scriptures, you know what we would be? We'd be in the Word. We'd be meditating on the Word. We'd be fellowshipping in the Word. We would be, to use a metaphor from the Scriptures, we would be people, we'd be virgins with oil in our lamps. Right? That's what we'd be. And if we were honest with ourselves, it's not that we're not fellowshipping the scriptures and therefore not anything. 
it's not in the scriptures because we consider other things more valuable. Does that make sense? And so, if I may continue with that idea of the oil lamp and the oil in it, instead of not having oil in it, it's not like it's empty of everything, of anything. But in reality, there's all sorts of other things in the oil, oil lamp, right? In the reservoir. There's all sorts of things in the reservoir. But you know what? All the, stuff's, all the stuff that's in the reservoir doesn't wick and it doesn't burn. That's the problem. It doesn't wick and it doesn't burn. And that's how ill-prepared we are. Our lives are full, aren't they? It's not that our lives are devoid of fullness. Right? Our lives are full. The oil lamp is full, isn't it? No oil. It's also other things. We find here, for three Sabbaths he goes, and he reasons with them from the scriptures. And then notice verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now I want to stop this for a second. There's a couple things I want to say about this verse. The first part of the verse, that is. You'll notice right away that it seems like the rub in the whole discussion with the Jews is not primarily Jesus. Is it? It's not primarily Jesus. It's primarily the issue of suffering. It seems like the Jews are writing off Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, because the evidence being the means of his death. Which tells you that they have really mishandled Isaiah 39-66. Because Isaiah 39-66 is all about the suffering Messiah. So they've totally, even at this point in time, rewritten or re misunderstood the discussion that Isaiah had, the declarations that Isaiah had with regard to the suffering servant. It seems like the issue of his suffering was really, really big for him, for them. That was a major rub for them. And, and we, we know that historically they didn't have a problem with, with the Messiah being sent by God. They didn't have a problem with him being a redeemer but this idea of suffering was didn't fit into their package at all. And so therefore Jesus could not be. And what did what did Paul do? He went right to the conflict. Didn't he? He didn't dance around it. He didn't avoid the point of the conflict. He went right to it, which is very intriguing because often people say, Well man, can't you be a little nicer about it? He goes right after it, doesn't he? Right after explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So it may have been an issue with regard to rising from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So notice, he started out in the end of verse 2, reasoning with them from the scriptures. And then verse 3, he explains to them, and you can drag down the word from the scriptures, he explains to them from the scriptures that Jesus had to suffer and had to rise from the dead, the things they were rejecting, and not just explaining, 
but proving you see that he reasoned and in reasoning he explained and proved the point that Luke is making is as Paul talked to them from the scriptures reasoning with them from the scriptures the first thing he did is he explained to them what the scriptures said about why he had to suffer and die I suspect he was mostly in Isaiah they, the, evident, the seeming evidence that is implied here, they are throwing up a wall of objections. And his response to the wall of, ex, um, of rejections and arguments against him, he doesn't just explain. By the scriptures and from the scriptures, he destroys all their arguments. So that shows how intimate he was with the scriptures. I just want to point it out to you. Because on the one hand, it's one thing to explain something to somebody. That's relatively easy, isn't it? But when they come with knowledgeable, well-thought-out disagreements to what you just explained, and it's in the midst of the rejection, it's in the midst of the disagreement, and a massive wall, as wall after wall after wall of disagreements. Luke explains, he declares that Paul didn't just explain to them that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise again, but he proved it to them. The idea is he dismantled all their walls. Every wall of objection they threw up, he, from the scriptures, dismantled them. That's what he did. Now, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm sure Paul was, like, super intelligent, and, and he, probably, uh, he probably had an IQ of 170, and um, on and on. You know what I'll tell you? No. I, I, I don't know what his IQ was. I don't know what his intelligence level, intelligence level was. But let's not be natural. Let's be supernatural, shall we? The reason why Paul is able to do this is first because he's saturated the scriptures. Thoroughly immersed. And the reason, therefore, why he was able to destroy all the arguments is not because he's so intelligent and so logical. His name was not Spock. It's because he had the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work in him. That's why. Now, it's really easy to say, well, yeah, but at the same time, okay, in that case, well, but you got to understand that he's an apostle and I'm not. Paul said in Colossians, he said, I am confident that you are able to admonish. That's what he said. Paul the apostle said to people in Colossae who were not apostles, I'm confident, and the context of why he says he's confident that they're able to do this is why? 
twofold because they know the scriptures and they have the spirit. That's the context. They have the spirit and they have the scriptures. I'm confident you are able to admonish. It says. And you don't find anywhere in the scriptures where any of the writers of the scriptures say, listen, if you have any problem in your church, call the apostle. And he'll come in and straighten it out. Is that what you see? No. As a matter of fact, after all the apostles have gone but John, Revelation 2 and 3, John doesn't say to the churches that are coming part of the seams, I'll come and take care of it for you. Is that what he says? No. He says, hey, I know that there's a couple of you who haven't bowed your knee to Baal. Stir up what remains. That's what he says. Stir up what remains. Peter says the same thing in 1st and 2nd Peter. And Paul says that repeatedly throughout his epistles. It's not that we need the apostle who has the super intellect that has a super work of spirit in him. Did the spirit work differently? Yes. Inspired texts came out of their pens. Right? And there are a couple times when they did miracles. But I want to remind you what Paul said. What is Paul? What is Apollos? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One plants, one waters, but what? God yields the increase every time. It's not like, yeah, well, if I was like Paul, I could have done the same thing. Really? God yields the increase. And by the way, the scriptures also say God did not choose uh, many wise or many noble, but he chose what? The foolish things to what? Compound the wise, or confound the wise. See, we follow the trap. This is a classic example of how we think, but that's not thinking from the scriptures, is it? What did I just do? I brought us back to scriptures. How important that is that we see this. So in this case, what Paul did is he took them to the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, and I love this part, this Jesus, whom I proclaim, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now, Luke has kind of cleaned this up for, for expediency's sake. And what I mean by that is, you don't get a feel for what the meeting was actually like. Do you? But you know it's contentious. It's going to get real contentious in just a little bit. But you know it's contentious. Because there's disagreement. That's why he's reasoning, explaining, and proving. Why? Because reasoning, explaining, and proving are necessary to use with people who don't agree. So you know it's contentious. And at the end, he just looks at him and says, Hey, 
I've reasoned from the scriptures, I've explained from the scriptures, I've proven from the scriptures that this is, that this Jesus, who I've been reasoning, explaining, and proving to you, unequivocally, declaratively, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now we discover, as it goes on into verse 4, it says, and some of them were persuaded. So I stop there for a second. Some of them, in this case, it was, we're talking about the leaders, rabbis, and Jews that are in the synagogue. Some of them were persuaded. Which means, most of them were not. But some of them were. Some of these Jews were persuaded. They were convinced that what Paul said is true. Spirit was at work in some of them, correct? The Spirit was moving in some. The rest, the most of them, were not. So they, those who were persuaded joined Paul and Silas. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you think about it for a second, I find it very interesting. For three Sabbaths, and whatever went on in between the Sabbaths, because you know Paul's, during the week, doing the same thing outside of the synagogue. And I think the evidence is quite clear as we go on in this, in this verse a little bit further. The raucous nature of what's going on isn't bad yet, but it's going to get real bad in just a little bit. But it's there. And those who are persuaded by the Spirit through the Scriptures, as Paul proclaimed the Scriptures, do what? Join Paul and Silas. That is, they identify with Paul and Silas. That's what it means. They stand up with Paul and Silas. Now, we can't miss the point here, friends. This is not a silent joining with. This is evident. The picture is one of evident, clear evidence. They are joining with Paul and Silas, and the implication being that there is evidence being given, and one of the clearest evidences that would ever be given is what? I agree with them. And what did I just do? I used words. Correct? The most obvious way in which it would be evidenced was that they are not combative and they're agreeing with them. I can almost hear it as Paul is reasoning with them from the scriptures, slowly but surely there's some Jews, maybe even a couple of rabbis, we don't know, who are probably sitting there and as someone's disagreeing saying, yeah, but it's as Paul said last, last Saturday. When he spoke about the scriptures here, that is Jesus. It's pretty clear. Don't you see it? Does that make sense? I mean, that's the only thing that, in my mind that makes sense. They're identifying with Paul and Silas. That's what it says. They join Paul and Silas. And then it goes on and says, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few leading women. So that means that Paul is also, Paul and Silas are also out in the marketplace and, 
out and about during the week doing what? Evangelizing, reasoning for the scripture, explaining and proving from the scriptures during the week as well. And it says many devout Greeks now they're probably in the synagogue as well, but they're getting inundated with it because they know Paul's lifestyle throughout the week as well. A great many, in other words, easily more than 50% of those who heard, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not even a, you know, even not a few of the leading women. It was very common in, in, in Macedonia for women to have leading positions and leading they were leaders, they were authority figures in a lot of cases. And so these leading women were even converting to Christianity, embracing Jesus as the Christ. And that's con contrasted with verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. So the Jews, those who have been listening to Paul, the vast majority of them, Rather than embracing the truth, it's interesting. It doesn't say that they're just merely upset at Paul and Silas. It says something very different. They're jealous. What are they jealous about? What do you think they're jealous about? They lost their argument. Partially they lost they the argument, but I think it's something more significant. What? They lost a lot of their influence. They lost some influence. That's part of it as well, but not primarily. Well, that's true, but what are they jealous about? The, 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 the Greeks are, are becoming believers. And what has Paul been saying for three Sabbath days? Jesus is the Jews' Messiah. And who's believing primarily? The Greeks, the Gentiles. The Gentiles are believing. And so the Jews, I would present to you, understanding, it wasn't gibberish what Paul was saying, understanding the arguments of Paul and realizing they had no argument against Paul with regard to Jesus being the Messiah, but because the Spirit wasn't at work in their lives, they were not repenting and believing, correct? Because it's all Spirit-driven. They're recognizing that their arguments cannot stand against Paul's from the Scripture. That Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, but they're not responding to it because they cannot, because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They see the Gentiles responding and believing to the Jewish Messiah. Make sense? So they're jealous. And what does it say happens? What Luke describes as happening is what we saw in the book of Mark. If you come in contact with Jesus, what happens? There must be a response. There must be a reaction. And we have it here. We have the Greeks, a few Jews, the Greeks, and some leading women are what? They come in contact with Jesus through the declaration of Paul of the scriptures, and they respond in faith. Correct? There's a response. It has to be there. And then you have the, the Jews who are not being moved by the Spirit to believe. 
are also responding, are they not? They're absolutely responding, but their response is one of hatred and jealousy. And so how do they respond? As they respond, they're jealous, and notice what they do. Taking some wicked men of the rabble. What do they do? They go around and they gather up the riotous ones. The ones who are prone to look for an opportunity to riot. And what they do? And they gather them together and they get them all riled up over this. Make sense? They get them all riled up and riots begin. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So the entire city now is in an uproar against Paul and Silas, a few Jews, and a great number of these, of these Greeks, it's not meaning most of the Greeks of the city, but the ones who as described, is described here, the um, uh, devout Greeks, great many of the devout Greeks, the vast majority of them in the city would not have been devout. So the rest of the Greeks, they get them riled up, along with the majority of the Jews, they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they, they focus that uproar specifically upon, eventually, the house of a guy by the name of Jason, who most likely is a believer who is housing them while they're in town. And they're seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And you know why they want to bring them out to the crowd? Not because they want to reason with them. They want to kill them. And when, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, so some of their brothers are there, the new believers, before the city authority, shouting, these men, not Jason primarily, but these men, Paul and Silas and his friends, have turned the world upside down, uh, who have turned the world, I'm sorry, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are act, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. It is interesting what these this mob does, being led by the Jews who were jealous. They say, firstly, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. Now, is that true? They turned the world upside down? Well, yeah. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek, right? Turn the world upside down. You're declaring something radically different than anyone has believed. So clearly, they're turning the world upside down. However, what these, this mob is saying is not correct. Because it's the, the, the ones who have got them together are the ones most likely that are primarily saying, these people, Paul and Silas and his friends, have turned the world upside down, referring to what's going on here, too. But who got the mob together? Who riled up the mob? The Jewish leaders did. They're the ones who riled them up. They're the ones, they're the ones who turned the world upside, this world upside down in town. Not Paul and Silas. Now, Paul and Silas's message does it turn the world upside down? Oh, absolutely, it does. And by the way, the turn the world upside down is important for us to recognize. Even the world recognizes something, friends. Even the world recognizes that if the gospel message is true at all, it will turn a person's world upside down. You realize that? They recognize it. It doesn't change an aspect of a person's world. Or two aspects. 
are three aspects. True Christianity turns the world upside down. As it says. They're right. Now they're wrong in that they're implying to the leaders of the town that this mob is because of is caused by Paul and Silas and the friends, which isn't true. But they're right that Christianity does that very thing. Let me just ask you, just reasoning from the scriptures. Did it turn Saul's life upside down? Or did it just change a few aspects of his life? Did it change Timothy's life upside down? Did it change John's life upside down? Did it change Peter's life upside down? Is there anybody in the scriptures, anybody in the scriptures that was truly a believer that didn't change their world, didn't turn the world upside down? No. Did it even change the repentant thieves' world and turn it upside down? Yes. Every step of the way, it turned their world upside down. Who didn't it turn upside down? Well, ultimately, Judas. Right? Demas? Diotrephes? Churches in Asia? Ananias and Sapphira? Right? I'm sorry? I couldn't hear you. The rich young rulers? It didn't turn their world upside down, did it? No. You see, the love of Christ did not control them, did it? The fear of God did not control them, did it? And the result was what? They ended up being condemned. But when the gospel truly has its effect, what do you see universally in the scriptures? Spirit using the gospel, using the scriptures, causes people's lives to what? Always be turned upside down. We started out the study this morning by talking about how Christianity looks very different from this. You start to see it more clearly here? It doesn't turn our life upside down, does it? Too often... In most cases, it really is not an upside-down thing, is it? It becomes a component. Doesn't it? It's like it's an add-on. Nice thing to have. It may be a really valuable add-on, right? It may be a really valuable add-on. But it remains an add-on. It's like, I have some really cool apps on my phone that I use really regularly. I really like them. They're a really nice addition to my phone. But they're not my phone. Are they? What's that? Yes. It becomes like a cultural app. It's a great way to put it, Tom. The app is a great addition to the phone, but it's not the phone. We had, we had the app to our lives called Christianity and it ends up being a cultural app. It's really nice to have. It's convenient to, when I wanted to push the button and turn it on, right? To open it up. And it becomes useful to me at that moment in time. 
But once it ends up being useful, I do what with it? I turn it off and go somewhere else on my phone, right? And ultimately, my phone is not identified by that app, is it? No. It's just a component. Those are the people in the scriptures that end up being condemned. They always end up being condemned. You see, in, in Matthew, when Jesus says, there will be many in that day that I'll say, depart me, I never knew you, and they'll say, whoa, 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 wait, didn't we do this in your name, do that in your name? And in effect, what Jesus says, like, you just hit the app occasionally. That's all you did. You occasionally open the app. That's all I was. I never did. We were never in intimate relationship. <clears throat> the spirit was not causing you to be consumed. Now it was true in verse seven. They're all acting against the priest of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. That's true, right? They're declaring that Jesus is king, prophet, priest, and king. But they're only telling half the story, aren't they? Because that king, Jesus, did not say, ignore your king, did he? Ignore the other kings. He never said that. And that's the implication of the text. So we come to verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, the rest of them go. So basically, Jason and, and, and the other brothers had to pay bail. They can go home. And that's the end of the story in Thessalonica. Well, it's not the end of the story in Thessalonica, it'll continue, but that's the end of this story in Thessalonica. The beginning of, of the establishment of the church. And what you have at the beginning of the establishment of the church is a dramatic contrast between religious, as in Jewish religious people, and the Roman, Roman people, the Grecian people were very religious people in general, but contrast between all of them and the followers of Jesus. And you see that the followers of Jesus are embracing the scriptures, they're loving the scriptures, they're immersed in the scriptures, they're proclaiming the scriptures. They're reasoning from the scriptures. They're explaining from the scriptures. They're proving from the scriptures. And they're declaring from the scriptures. And then you get everybody else. Now today, again, I will say that you have, you have people. It's interesting we've established a third category today. You have the people who reason from the scriptures, explain the scriptures, prove from the scriptures, and declare that Jesus is the Messiah, right? You have some. Then you have those who oppose the world, right? You have those who oppose. But today we have a third category. The vast swath of Christianity are those that are neither category one nor category three. 
the vast majority end up being category two. And category two is when it's safe, I'll mention it. Category two are when it's convenient, I'll be involved. Category two are people who are people who will be involved when there's no cost or minimal cost. And we miss the point that category two people are really nothing more than the category of the world. They're the same. They really are. It's just that one, one category is inflamed with Jesus, the other category is absolutely opposed to Jesus, and the third category, if, if we were able to, to evaluate it objectively, we'd have to come to conclusions for the vast majority of the time they're ambivalent. Does that make sense? The vast majority of the time, category two people are ambivalent. There are occasions of time where they seem to flicker Jesus. Occasions of time where there seems to be a flicker. And I use that term very specifically. Because, you know, if you take an oil lamp and it has no oil in it, maybe full of something else but not oil, you try to light it, it may smoke a little bit. You may see some red ember, right? For a little bit. See a little wisp of smoke and some red embers where the flame actually touched the, the wick. But when you take the, 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 the match away, real quickly, that, that, that red ember goes out. And real quickly, there's no more smoke. And real quickly, it's cold once again. Isn't it? If you ever play with an oil lamp, you know that's Hicks. Every time. But when there's oil, the match gets even close and it just jumps right across, doesn't it? It just jumps right across. There's no little ember or wisp of smoke. There's flame. It's clear. And a light drives out the darkness, doesn't it? It's exactly what happens. As I'd argue, this supposed category two we've created today not found in the scriptures. You never find ambivalence with occasional embers and occasional smoke. <clears throat> and we know by the evidence in the scriptures that it cannot be the first category. People who are immersed in the scriptures. Who the love of Christ is controlling. So it has to ultimately be that that second category is nothing more than the third category that we've tried to clean up a little bit. The answer again is not, well, I gotta I gotta work harder at knowing the scriptures. And I guess I got I better read the scriptures more often. I guess I better really, 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 really work on on meditating on the scriptures. It's not the answer because for by grace we are what? Saved through faith. 
out of works. Lest any man should boast. It is a crying out to God for mercy. And that is only by the scriptures. The Spirit uses the scriptures in our lives to draw us close, to transform us, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to worship. That's why the scriptures talk about buying without money. It says. And we sing a song that says, all we need to have is a need for him. I don't know if we've sung that song recently or not. But then the song goes on and says, and that he gives us. Right? Even that he gives us. Because we can conjure up nothing. So let us pray. Shall we? The Spirit will inflame us. Draw us close. Reveal to us the need. And the Spirit at work in us, he will do so. There is no category two. So either category one or three. Let's pray that the Spirit will inflame us and the evidence will be clear that we are one. Because he's united us with him. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know that left to ourselves, we will always be category three. And the result is condemnation. And we ask you, Lord, to be at work in us. Open the scriptures to us. Open our hearts so that we desire, we crave your word. We crave you. We know we still we still struggle with sin. And there's a war that is forever. The side of glory will be going on in our lives. But we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so we ask you, as the greatest one, that you will transform our hearts. Draw us close. Give us cravings to drink, to feast, for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.